Hi, I'm Sherry Davis, Canada's Dogmaster and the trainer of Rex on the Canadian City TV series Hudson and Rex. This is How to Dog. <coughs> Each episode, someone like you calls in with a canine question. This week, we're getting incisive with a look at bites and how to prevent your dog from biting and what to do if it does bite. Hi, my name is Taylor. Uh, we recently adopted a two-year-old bull terrier from a rescue, and he's very reactive to all dogs and has a very high prey drive. He's had two bite incidents recently, so we've been keeping on him on a muzzle every time we take him out. What sort of things can we do to get our dog to enjoy the muzzle more or you know, not be so mopey and sad whenever we have to put it on him? Thanks for calling in, Taylor. If you have a dog that's prone to biting or nipping, maybe snapping, whatever you want to call it nowadays, it can be really stressful. And do you know that many places, many municipalities have a two bite and you're out bylaw? What does that mean? Well, that means if you can't prevent your dog from biting someone a second time, you may be forced to put your dog down, not to mention face criminal charges and even a lawsuit from the victim. So biting is something that we need to take very seriously. The good news is, for most dogs at least, that you can train them to avoid biting. You can also take the steps as a responsible owner to reduce the chance of it happening. But how? Well, that is what we're going to find out here today on How to Dog. Hi everyone. I bought a new muzzle for my pet duck. Nothing fancy. But it fits the bill. Remember, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be professional advice. Always consult with an expert when taking care of your own doggo. Over to you, Sherry. It probably goes without saying that the best way to stop a dog from biting is to train it so that it never bites at all. But that can be harder than it sounds. Remember that dogs use their mouths for many tasks, and it takes skill and training to learn how to put the correct amount of pressure on something so it doesn't get hurt or damaged. Imagine a toddler learning how to use a pencil for the very first time and figuring out how hard to press before they break the tip. It really is no different. So first up today, we've got one of the best-known experts on dog aggression in the world, Mike Shikashio is a certified animal behavior consultant who teaches trainers in more than 25 countries on how to help people ensure that their dogs are safe and not aggressive. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Mike. I can't tell you how much it means to have you part of our show. It is a, a little bit of a problem that we see um, out there with dogs that are biting. It is. And we're seeing quite a bit more of it these days with the pandemic. And, and in fact, one of the things I'm seeing that maybe we can talk about later is the pandemic puppies, where a lot of people went out and got puppies and unfortunately weren't able to socialize them as much as they should have or maybe wanted to. And the lack of socialization is causing behavior issues now. You know, it's funny because a lot of people are in denial that their dogs bite and they just say, oh, they're puppies or, oh, it's just a nip or it's just, oh, they didn't mean it. You know, they were just mouthing. But what constitutes a bite in your opinion? Well, that's a great question. You know, I'm actually uh, working with a team on defining that actual definition now. Uh, it's, it's a broad term and one that is often misapplied or misunderstood. So 
you know, technically a bite is, you know, when teeth make, you know, contact with somebody, whether it's, you know, mouthing, you know, I'm using the air quotes here. So mouthing or nipping, or even in play, you know, when a teeth, when teeth hit skin, it can be, you know, even if you start looking at court cases, sometimes you have a dog that just runs by and they're just playing and they grab onto a child's arm and that's going to look, be looked at as a bite in some jurisdictions. So yes, there is a lot of misconceptions about bites and what people, you know, people panic <laughs> when they hear about bites too, you know, they, and, and it's, and especially if you're the owner of that dog, nobody wants to have the dog. It's like kind of having like a kid in school. Nobody wants to admit their kids punching all the other kids in class. And it's the same thing with dogs. Nobody wants to say, well, yeah, my dog's biting people because it's, it's not a very uh, good picture for their dog. So you will hear lots of sugarcoating, lots of colloquial ways of, of people responding to how they're, they describe that. Um, so I take an empathetic approach often with pet owners and, you know, I will let them describe what's going on, but then I'll help define them, <laughs> define really what's happening in the case, help them understand why their dog might be behaving that way. Right. You're playing the nice devil advocate. <laughs> uh, you have to. <laughs> yeah, with aggression <laughs> cases, you definitely have to. So, you know, there's a stat here that, that I have, and it says, according to the Canine Journal, dog bites around 4.7 million people worldwide each year. To me, that would only be reported bites. Correct. And unfortunately, based on just my small amount of knowledge in this, I would say that's only maybe a quarter because little dog bites, generally people just put it off as it's a little dog. Puppies, they put off as, oh, it's just a nip or it's mouthing or it's this. And that number is actually very low, even though it's 4.7 million dog bites. And that might shock people, but um, I, I honestly think that's not a really good, true assessment of how many dogs are biting. I agree. It, that number is very low. I would even, I would even gander it's even higher than just a quarter. So I would say even 10 times as many bites are happening that aren't getting reported. And that's just based on my client caseload. You know, it's many, many of the, the dogs have bitten somebody, but that person is a family member or a friend and they're not they like they say oh don't worry about it i'm fine and so they don't never report it so the dog the bite never gets reported and that's a lot of the cases because people don't want to get the dog in trouble right or they don't want to get their own dog in trouble or maybe they've even bitten breaking up their dogs who are fighting a lot of those go unreported you know the ones that are reported are either reported to animal control or the person's going to seek medical care and so you have a lot more minor or less severe bites also not making it into that pool of of reported bites. So it, it's definitely a lot lower than, than we think. I'm Sherry Davis, Canada's dog master. Today on How to Dog, we're talking about aggression and biting in dogs and how to manage it. In a little while, we're going to learn some surprising legal facts about everything from what counts as a bite to how long your leash is legally allowed to be. You won't want to miss this. But as I said earlier, the best way to never need a lawyer is for you to have training. And that's what I'm talking about right now with animal behavior consultant Mike Shikashio. Mike 
for me, if I have a dog that I know is going to bite or has the risk of biting or a probability, accountability, I'm going to put a muzzle on my dog. And that to me is responsible ownership. And I'm saving my dog's life potentially because I don't want my dog to harm another dog. I don't want my dog to get in trouble. But unfortunately, people seem to have this misconception that muzzles are bad. Do you find that? All the time. Yeah. Um, I always use the saying, you know, muzzles are cheaper than dog bites. You know, so a $10 or $15 muzzle is going to be a lot less than the $18,000 average lawsuit that happened in the United States back in the you know late 2018, 19 era time frame. And so, because um, Muzzles, they have so many misconceptions. You know, people think, oh, those are cruel or my dog can't breathe or they can't open their mouth. But a well-fit muzzle, the dog should be able to do everything else they can normally do. They can eat, drink, pant, yawn, vomit, you know, all the things they could normally do except bite somebody when with a properly fit and acclimated muzzle. So uh, it, it's, I think it's, again, another perception issue where somebody sees the dog and they don't immediately think like Hannibal Lecter, you know, the dog's got something on their face. What is that? It's awful. And uh, again, it's 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 the what the choice is. Sometimes you know the next bite could be the ultimate fate of the dog. In some jurisdictions, especially, it can be you know second bite is not looked upon very lightly with some animal control and uh, Department of Agriculture jurisdictions. So it's it's always always a better idea if the dog has bitten to use a muzzle to be safe. It's really all boils down to context. I mean, every dog has the potential to bite, right? Every dog can bite. Now, there's going to be, of course, dogs that have a higher likelihood of biting based on their past history or even their breeding or their socialization. There's many factors that can affect the likelihood of a dog biting. But it's just like people. I use analogies all the time with my clients. It's just like people. Like, you know, Grandma Sue, who's been very peaceful, you know, uh, sings in the choir, knits for the kids, that, you know, just lovely, nonviolent person might resort to punching somebody that comes into her home and threatens her grandchildren, right? So we could say a blanket statement, you know, Grandma Sue would never, never punch anybody. She's just not that kind of person. But put the, put the context correctly, she might resort to using violence to protect someone she loves or even herself. And dogs are exactly the same. If we put them in the context, you could take the sweetest therapy, golden retriever, uh, and, and if you put it in a situation where the context is correct, there's a potential for bites. Not to say it would bite, but there's a higher likelihood based on the context. So um, it's it's important to remember all, you know, most dogs out there do have teeth. Right. And they can use them. And, and they use them every day. Like they eat with them, they communicate with their teeth and their mouths. And so, you know, you can't label a, a, a biting dog. I, I don't believe you should be labeling dogs. I don't like to label dogs as aggressive or reactive. I much rather focus on the actual behavior. So I will say, well, your dog bit somebody uh, when they came into the house. You know, they, 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 your dog bit somebody on the arm. So I'm not saying your dog, I, I don't go to the client and say, your dog's aggressive. I say, your dog bit somebody arm when they w- walked into the home. So we got to concentrate on helping your dog feel better about people walking home, but also teaching your dog what to do instead. So I never come out and say, you know, your dog's aggressive or just reactive or your dog's not that bad or I don't use any labels. It's more important just to focus on the behavior because that's what's really going to help the dog. Exactly. And, and, you know, this is something that people have to know is that you could have a dog 
that is the best dog in in the world and you know you have people in your house you have kids you have and then all of a sudden you give your dog a new toy a bone let's say and the kid goes to grab the bone and the dog nips well it's it's not that your dog is a it's not it's a new behavior per se it's not that the dog is turned now and is going to be biting everybody and everything it's the situation that caused the reaction of the bite Right. And it's like that kind of example is it's a it's normal behavior for all animals. For, so, so, you know, if we were to label that, we would call it resource guarding. Right. So the dog is protecting something that's valuable to them. But that's something we all do. I mean, look at toilet paper and hand sanitizer during the pandemic. You know, if somebody reached into your shopping cart right after in April, you'd probably be smacking their hand away. And that's the same phenomenon that happens with dogs it's they're protecting something value that's how dogs and humans have survived for for millennia because we protect what's valuable to us because it helps us survive and so for us not to for that to not happen with some dogs is almost um not normal not to see some level of guarding of something of value then when you when you add in there's there's a technical term it's called distant antecedents and that's when you add in things that are make it more likely to happen so if you have a dog that just got out of the shelter and they were getting their first bone that you gave them. You get, you, you know, it's getting close to the holidays. You get this nice new shiny bone and they just got out of the shelter. So you adopted a Christmas dog, but they're super hungry. It's the first time they got a bone like this in their life. Uh, and then in this new environment and it is the most valuable thing. It is like giving somebody a million dollar lottery ticket, you know, putting it in front of your lap. And then somebody comes over and tries to snatch that away from you. It's normal behavior. You're going to protect what's highly valuable to you. So those things that make it more likely to happen, like something of high value, or maybe the dog's hungry, or maybe the dog's on a medication or has underlying medical issues that makes it more hungry, uh, or underlying pain issues or previous negative associations with the child. There's so many things that can fuel that behavior to make it more likely. Once we understand those things, it's so much easier to really help the dog again and understand and manage and modify that behavior. So... When we have um, people go out, you know, they love puppies. People will want to go out. They want a dog. And a lot of times they'll go and they get puppies. And I'm going to rat out my brother here (laughs) because he got a puppy. And he said, oh, my God, Sharon, the dog's just hanging off my pant leg. I'm walking and I've taken him for a walk and I played this. And I'm like, so he's biting you. And he's like, no. I'm like. Uh, yes. Oh, and the other thing he said is uh, it's a basset hound. So you can only imagine the ears. So I said, make sure, you know, you're cleaning the ears. And oh, he doesn't like that. I said, he's like a 10 week old puppy. Make make it now so that he gets used to it. Good advice. Right. Like we want yeah. to we want to expose them to this. We want to make it a positive because if at 10 weeks we've got a dog that is not wanting to be brushed, not wanting to be bathed, not wanting to be cleaned, not wanting their nails touched. Is this not part of the desensitizing to avoid problems later on in life? It is. And it's so important because the traditional puppy classes we grew up with, you know, it's, it's you take the dog to a puppy class, maybe they socialize with other puppies, which is a good thing in some cases. Uh, but we used to focus on sit and stay and come, which are important exercises. But I think what has is more important, though, is that the two things you just mentioned there is the socialization with people and other dogs, but also the husbandry and handling exercises for many of these uh, dogs, because 
they need to, they're going to have those experiences at some point, whether it's ear cleaning or nail trims or uh, vets visits, those kind of things. If we, if we start them off early and make it a positive experience, it can, you, you, you will save a lot of money in the long run because then you won't have to hire a guy like me to come out and help you with a dog that's biting you when you try to clean its ears. And so a lot of that, yeah, it's, it's puppies are a lot of work. You know, we, we sometimes forget that people, especially the clients I have that they go out, they have a senior dog, maybe they just passed and they, you know, they've had this dog for 10, 15 years and then they go out and get a puppy and they forget just how much work the puppy is and all the things that you need to put into it. It's like having a newborn baby. You know, there's a lot of time you got to teach the dog the right things, get them used to certain aspects of life. So yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot we can do with puppies that can really mitigate risks of any kind of problem behaviors later on. Absolutely. And what made you get into this field? I did a lot of fostering when I was younger. So I did a lot of work with rescues and in, in shelters and foster dogs. And I started getting more and more of the, uh, you know, behavior problem dogs. Uh, that's what they do to fosters. <laughs> when you start getting experience, they start sending the more difficult uh, dogs <laughs> to, you know, to foster. And uh, that, that's what made me catch the behavior bug. I really wanted to help these dogs. And the main reason was because those dogs are the ones that are at a much higher risk of behavioral euthanasia or not being able to get a home because of their behavior problems. It's one of the number one reasons, of course, for dogs to be surrendered to shelters is behavior issues. So it's uh, one of the reasons I got into it because I knew that I'd be able to help the dogs the most, at least with the behavior issue side, stay out of shelters in the first place or uh, avoid going into shelters you know, if they have a behavior issue. Well, thank you so much. And I really look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye now. Mike is an internationally renowned animal behavior consultant based in the U.S. I'm Sherry Davis, and this is How to Dog. Today, we're talking about biting and aggression. Jeremy McKenzie is a personal injury lawyer and a partner at Toronto law firm Burgell McKenzie. Jeremy has lots of advice to help you make sure that you and your dog never end up on the opposite side of him in a courtroom or needing his services. And I promise that some of what he has to say is going to surprise you. You know, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. And I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who are like, what, what, what are you saying, Cher? Why do we need a lawyer? Our dog's not going to bite. But... In actuality, the Canadian stats say that there's 42 dog bites per hour. Do you, have you heard of this? The stat doesn't surprise me. Um, certainly over the years, and I've been doing this for 25 years, over the years, I've had uh, my fair share of, of not just dog bite cases, Sherry. Something else to know is that under the Dog Owners uh, Liability Act, DOLA, as it's known, in Ontario, is that it's not just a dog bite. It could be a dog scare. It could be as simple as a dog jumping up on an individual or even lunging at someone without actually touching them. And all that is captured under the Dog Owners Liability Act. So, and I, over the years, you, I, we've seen certainly an, an increase in the number of these, uh, these dog incidents. And certainly over the last year, since COVID hit and more people are housebound, um, they've you know, the, I, I believe the stats show that there's been an increase in number of dogs that have been purchased. And uh, as a result, the stats make total sense. Okay. So um, I always tell people when you get a dog, there's a couple things you should always do. First thing is 
read up on the DOLA Act. Second thing is tell your insurance companies that you have an animal because there is on everybody's policy, there is that question. And a lot of people who, you know, they've been married, they bought a house, they have a car, whatever, they haven't filled out insurance questionnaires in so many years, then they get a dog and forget that they should be informing their insurance companies of this. Because at the end of the day, if my dog was to, let's say, bite somebody, would a lot of people just assume it's the insurance companies and they take care of it? Some people don't have, you know, any kind of tenants insurance, any renters insurance. And that really is a mistake. They want to make sure that they are insured and that they're covered in case something does happen. Now, you know, should an incident happen, you're right, though, that the, the insurance company most often will take care of it. But you still have to, you still have obligations as the dog owner in order to you know, inform your insurance company that an incident occurred, um, inform the various government agencies, making sure that, uh, that everything is being looked after. And you also want to make sure that, uh, you know, when you're, you know, that you've, you know, you've taken all the precautions leading, even leading up to an attack, you know, you want to, it's, you know, it's a lot of common sense, um, goes a long way when you, when you have an animal. Who actually owns the dog? Like who is the owner of, of an animal? Because is an animal not considered basically a possession? So this is where it gets very interesting. And this is, a, this is actually a, a somewhat broad question and a lot of parts of this, but this is very interesting. So the first thing that, you know, if you look at the Dog Owners Liability Act, it sets out, you know, really in terms of who an owner is, right? And the owner is someone who is in possession and control of the animal. And, you know, I'll talk about that in one second, because that's, that's really important, not just, you know, in terms of who bought it, but who's in control of it at a, at a given moment? Because you have situations where nowadays, a lot of us are really busy and we're out of the house for 12, 14, 16, 18 hour days. So what happens? A lot of people get, they do one of two things. A lot of them, they get dog walkers or they put them in kennels, a lot of doggy daycare and, and you know, other places like that. Well, what ends up happening is that that dog walker could technically be considered an owner while they're walking your dog. Oh, I did not realize that. Right. So there, there is, and by the way, it doesn't even have to be professional. It could just be, it could be simple as your friend. You could ask your brother to walk your dog for you as a favor and something happens. Your brother's the owner while he's walking that dog. Wow. I don't think a lot of people understand that, you know, it's not just a dog bite. It can be the jumping and the lunging and the barking. It can be those things that are also suable. Some of my more memorable dog bite cases were actually not dog bites. <laughs> they really, they really weren't. I had, I had one where there was a, a dog. Somebody brought a dog into a, one of the big stores. And my client was walking through and the dog was still on a leash, but there was a, too much run and lunged at her. She fell and hit her head. And there was, no, there was never any contact, right? The dog never touched her. He just lunged at her from a distance, but enough to startle her, cause her to lose her balance, hit her head. And the, the dog owner was liable. And it was, you know, it was not an insignificant injury. You know, it was somebody who suffered you know, post-concussive syndrome, some, you know, some significant injuries as a result of it. Wow. 
Um, so you you get these situations again. A lot of them really aren't these dog bites and, and and scratches and mauling. That's what everybody thinks when there's you know they think of a dog bite or dog attack. They think of you know that there's bad scarring and there's been biting and there's puncturing of the skin and things like that. I, more of my cases are really aren't that. It could be the dogs running around and you know they gets the leash tangled around somebody else's legs and they fall. Um, it could be that they're walking down the sidewalk without, you know, in front of their owner without a leash, let's say, and somebody gets startled, gets scared and, you know, and steps off away, try to avoid the dog and falls and gets hurt. That's more, I find that that's more, the ones I've come across are more common than the actual dog attacking somebody. Right. But it had, at the end of the day, it's the same result. Jeremy, thank you so very much. It was a pleasure having you with us today. And you know, education is the key to safety. So thank you so very much. Thanks. Jeremy McGenzie is a personal injury lawyer who specializes, among other things, in cases involving dog aggression. What a fascinating conversation. There is so much more we could talk about when it comes to dogs and safety. Just make sure you're using your due diligence, keeping your dog safe, and everybody around you safe. Don't forget, give us a good review and call us at 1-833-HOW-TO-DOG with your burning canine questions, just like this one, which is coming up on our next episode. Hi, uh, my question would be, what kind of training is involved for the dog on the show, Rex Diesel? What, how rigorous is it? How many hours do they have to spend? Are there ever any bloopers from the dog? That would be awesome. Anyway, thanks so much for the consideration. Have a good day. How to Dog is hosted by Sherry Davis. Produced by Davin Langell and Carrie Hayden. Editing and mixing by Adam Killick. Follow How to Dog on social media at How to Dog Pod. How to Dog is a Shaftesbury podcast and part of the Frequency Podcast Network. You can find more great shows at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. Copyright 2021, Shaftesbury.